Hi everyone, welcome to Stay Home Podcast with Fiola Banyaku. This is part one of a two-part episode where we discuss all things mental health during the coronavirus crisis. In part one, Your Brain Matters, we're going to take a close look at the concept of an inner critic. In the last episode, episode five, I spoke about my inner critic and a lot of you got in touch to say that you felt that it really resonated with you. Joining me today is Dr. Navi Nagra, a clinical psychologist who specialises in elderly adult care. Today, Navi and I will be working through an exercise to help give a platform to a more soothing, compassionate inner voice. A word to the wise, a gentle disclaimer for those listening, what Navi and I will be doing in this episode is not formal therapy by any means. This exercise is intended to be a flavour of the type of therapy tools available And it's the sort of thing you should be doing with a therapist one-on-one over a course of time, a few sessions at least. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, I just... I've had a lot of people get in touch about the inner critic stuff and then our discussion was so good the other day um, where we were discussing in depth the impact of mental health on mental health um, as a result of coronavirus, but then sort of general mental health needs. Um, so I thought we could kind of delve into that a bit more. What do you think? Yeah, sounds perfect. So what I was thinking was... Um, the self-soothing brain and how we were discussing um, the sort of how our brains have developed, evolved over time from being these sort of cavemen with primal instincts and how those instincts are still protecting us today. Um, But I thought it'd be interesting just to kind of also discuss kind of what takes up space in your brain. Um, So is it your bad relationships? Is it your um your work is it an addiction or anything like that and maybe we can discuss like the self-soothing stuff to take away from the negative aspects of our thoughts yeah so did I that sounded really good I really like the idea of something a bit interactive so um if you could share some exercises and we you could test them out on me and um that could be quite an interesting episode uh yeah let's just try it a little bit rather than kind of going in too deep um enough to kind of illustrate it to your listeners as well i think maybe in that case it'd be good if you could just kind of explain the background of what we're doing a little bit so what is compassionate therapy um what are the origins and um then we can get it straight into the exercise so compassion-focused therapy um, was first developed by a, a man called Paul Gilbert. And um, the reason it's, it's approach to sort of, sort of mental health distress is really useful is it kind of gives us an opportunity to step back and think about the different things that are happening in our brains. Um, and a lot of his kind of work was thinking about um, the kind of, the, the, the neural structures of the brain and how they kind of developed over time from kind of cavemen times or obviously before then as well um, and our kind of primal instincts of threat detection are often still with us and um, obviously 
two million years ago, it might have been a saber-toothed tiger that was our main threat and our threat system kicks in and we get adrenaline pumping through us and we can go run really, really fast and survive. But now times have changed. We have different types of threats. There's a lot less saber-toothed tigers, but there's a lot more threats of um, public embarrassment or kind of trauma from our loved ones. And, and not having a job and all these sort of things these are very real threats they're still real but they're not the kind of the same level of, of kind of the more obvious ones that happened in prehistoric kind of or prehistoric times and um, they're a lot more frequent and now actually we've evolved enough to carry these threats with us in our thoughts as well and thinking about kind of these negative thoughts they still elicit the same kind of reaction that let's say a tiger would elicit in us mm. so we slowly start to get anxious and we slowly start to feel it in our bodies and we get tighter and tenser as if we're about to run a mile but in reality it's just these thoughts kind of continuously going on and on and it's, it's a good way to think about it this kind of tricky mm. brain because we all have it the your a therapist has it a client has it your parents have it your boss has it everybody has a tricky brain because it's so it's all innate within us and it's a good way to conceptualize sort of the, our distress and how we feel because it takes the responsibility away from us. And often that's where we place most of the blame when we feel a bit down. And um, the one of the right. ways um, that this threat detection can communicate with us, this kind of section of our kind of our, reg our emotional regulation is a thing called a self-critic. And a self-critic is that little voice in the back of your mind that would say to you, oh my God, look, that looks like a tiger, go run. Or might say now, that looks like a dangerous dark alley. Or like a dangerous donut that you can't eat, that you shouldn't eat. <laughs> so it starts kind of just rearing its head here or there. And sometimes it's useful. And sometimes it's just overactive and really in your face. It's all consuming, I find sometimes. Like I have days where... Like today I feel pretty good, but I'm not going to lie. The last few days, I don't know what came over me, but I just felt low on energy and I felt like nothing was sort of going right. Um, and I think I find once it's so much easier to feed the inner critic than it is to feed the compassionate voice. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And in thinking about kind of the, if you're already kind of distressed about something else, maybe the inner critic said it, or maybe you're just not feeling great that day. Then it's like feeding into the self-critic. You get stuck in a bit of a cycle where your body's not feeling great or you're not feeling great in your mood. Then your self-critic's like, why are you not feeling great? What's going on? Should you be worried? Should we worry about this? How about I give you 10 more worries to worry about while you're here? 10 more worries. <laughs> <laughs> then like it starts going round and around and you just end up feeling worse. And and self-critic um, can, you know, it's got a loud voice and it's really persuasive and it's easier to believe than someone else, another voice, possibly the compassionate one saying, actually, you're doing all right. And if you had to pick between the two, the one that's criticising you is probably the one that seems to be the one that kind of touches you the most. So yeah. I think that's one of the one of the ways we kind of think about the, that kind of voice in the back of our heads. It's trying to protect us in a weird way, but it's just going on overdrive now. And we just got to find a way to regulate it. And luckily, that's also part of the way of looking at it from a compassion focused way is you have mm -hmm. the threat detection. But you also have the self-soothing section of our brains, which is kind of all those juicy hormones that make us feel really great, like oxytocin, and make us feel soothed. 
and that's there for a reason otherwise you can't be anxious all the time your body needs to give it a bit of a break so yeah you would combust exactly and and one of the ways that oxytocin is released is uh when you get a hug or these sort of different ways and then it's it's just a, a, a regulating system and um so one... in in lieu of a hug <laughs> yeah in lieu of a hug in lieu of any physical touch and contact which you know as you live alone um you kind of do miss that a little bit um mm-hmm. or a lot yeah uh in lieu of all those things, what are some, because we said we'd try some exercises. So what are some exercises we could do um, to combat this? So the idea of compassion, it's really, really difficult to sort of show compassion to yourself readily. I think being critical is, comes a lot more easily and a bit more kind of habitual than showing compassion. So doing compassion focus exercises or trying other ways that you would soothe yourself so um making your body relaxed in other ways just getting your that biofeedback loop just breaking it and making yourself feel better in the physical sense is a way out of kind of this more vicious cycle of the the self-critic and and feeling worse so in terms of exercises one of the key things to do is start building the strength of the compassionate voice so along with your really loud self-critic we also have this voice, a more softer one, or not as kind of in your face, of actually letting the one that kind of tells you you're doing okay, and the one that is there to um, kind of help regulate you and make you feel safe. Otherwise, you're right, we just combust. So that's more of a silent way of protecting you than the other way. Um, and some of the exercises are around kind of making that a bit more robust, like you said, and in terms of what we do on our own it's a daily practice so um the compassionate self we've got to first start with understanding what is compassion and it means different things to different people and i think that's really really key if you start saying compassion is like this but it's not kind of totally you don't totally relate to it you really put yourself on a back foot and thinking actually i'm not doing compassion right for goodness sake and that's the self-critic saying that not even in reality in that similarly with a compassionate voice it's about building an external version of that and there's a compassionate you know what is it could be what gender is it what color is it what kind of voice would it have how would it feel how would it walk and then once you've got that kind of image you can use that to kind of channel it and then it'll be a lot more stronger to channel than this kind of very empty idea sometimes or just be kind to yourself so like those are the kind of initial kind of blocking building blocks. They take time and therapy is really good to kind of explore that and to build it together with somebody, not kind of take all the responsibility. Um, but we could do one exercise now of kind of how to kind of just make ourselves feel a bit more grounded and calm when we feel a bit distressed. Yeah, um, I'm willing to try that. Okay. I'm nervous, uh, but I'm willing to try. Okay, I'm going to pick one. Um, because I feel like there's so many mm-hmm. and then if I read it from something it's you can obviously tell it's not me <laughs> okay. reading it like I'm reading someone else's voice so all of a sudden okay. I might turn like really American yeah like movie. an American jock yeah <laughs> <laughs> right now sit back no I won't do that <laughs> please do it <laughs> okay Brad if that's what you need to relax then I'm happy to be Brad <laughs> <laughs> That sounds wrong. <laughs> Fantasizing about whoever Brad is. Okay. 
Go on. Uh, okay. Me. So let me read it. If it sounds a bit weird, Fiona, we can cut it and start again. I'll do a different one. Okay. Judge cool. it, okay? Okay, so the compassionate self. Mm-hmm. Um, find somewhere you can sit quietly and will not be disturbed. Focus on your kind of soothing rhythm of your breathing. The kind of very gentle in and out motion. Mm-hmm. If you feel more comfortable, lower your gaze or shut your eyes. But really just focus mm-hmm. on your breathing. Take a moment to notice how you're breathing. If it is a fast, is it shallow? Definitely shallow. And slowly just take the time to slow it up and gradually get deeper and deeper in the breaths. Take a deep inhale. Slow exhale. Hmm, that does feel quite nice. So gently just take a moment for your body to slow down, even slightly. Now you're feeling slightly more relaxed and you're ready to start the practice of engaging your compassionate self. Imagine that you're a very deeply compassionate person. Think of all the qualities that you would ideally have as a compassionate person. Focus on your desires as a compassionate person to be able to think, act and feel compassionately. You want to be there for somebody. You want to show it in your actions and you want to have that true feeling of kindness towards others and eventually yourself. Next, Imagine yourself with each of those qualities noted. That simple in and out motion. Make it a little bit deeper on the next inhale. And just start focusing on your desire to become the compassionate self that you want to be. Thinking about how do you want to think, act, and feel compassionately. What would compassion look like to you or coming from you?
and just imagine yourself with each of those qualities that you're noting. A good place to start is a quality of wisdom because it can help support the other compassionate qualities you desire. But you may prefer to start with warmth. Just imagine that warmth expelling from you to others and how it makes them feel. Imagine being wise and having wisdom. Wisdom that comes from your understanding about the nature of our lives, our minds and bodies. And that there's so much that goes on inside us, which is not our fault. Spend time on just that thought. Switch to imagining having strength, maturity and authority. Explore your body posture. Sitting or standing confidently or assertively. And your facial expressions. Remember, you are imagining yourself as a person that understands one's difficulties and those of others in a non-judgmental way and has confidence to be sensitive with an ability to tolerate difficulties. How would you sit? How would you stand? And what would your face look like when you're being compassionate? When you're ready, move on to focus on the qualities of warmth, a gentle friendliness. Imagine being warm and kind. Create a compassionate facial expression. Imagine yourself speaking to someone and hear the tone of your voice. Imagine reaching out to someone with warmth and know that they might be like. Remember, it doesn't matter if you feel you don't have these qualities or you do have them. Just imagine that you have them. See in your mind yourself having them and work through them steadily, playfully and slowly. Sometimes we notice how each quality can affect our body differently. Remember that you may just get glimmers of things because your mind wanders or you can't really focus. This is very typical of what happens. The regular practice will help this. Okay, so yeah, no, that's just trying to bring up or embody a bit of a compassionate self. Um, 
out of a sort of score of 10, how easy was that to do? I think that was very easy to do out of 10, uh, probably like a seven. Had I not had the duvet over me, some recording (laughs) (laughs) and uh, my neighbours like jumping up and down, I think it would have been even higher. Okay. Uh, okay. It's something you can do remotely. Um, I mean, I'm sure just listening to that and trying to do it whilst you're sat down, standing up, or you can be on on the way to work and you can do it. Um, yeah. Basically like meditation. I feel quite calm actually now that we've done that, <laughs> despite those distractions. But um, it did feel like at points um, that that inner critic voice was coming in saying things like, why did you move into this flat with these kids that make so much noise? <laughs> and, um, you know, you're not sitting still and, oh, this thing is hurting your back. And, you know, all these little things. Mm-hmm. This thing being the duvet over my head. Um, that's the thing about the, the self-critic, you know, you know, it just wants to pop up and have some attention. But also some of the things he's saying are probably valid. If you don't feel comfortable... You don't feel comfortable and you're like, thanks, self-critic, but not right now. I can endure this a bit longer. So I'm just trying to think about kind of how easy and hard that task is, varies across everybody. And, and I'm glad to hear that you kind of, that came easy to you. And I think or easier to you. Um, but it, it's just the idea that if you can embody something, you're more likely to enter it and feel, if you feel good, you're more likely to kind of bring those kind of more positive and compassionate kind of thoughts in so if you felt really terrible like I said it's that biofeedback so this exercise is just trying to get you in a calmer place um and you're right practice this and this is like the first stage you can just practice this for all mindfulness or anything else that kind of is self-soothing that you find relaxing um and then get your body in a place that is ready to receive basically um so I think that's yeah that's that's really nice to hear and in terms of compassion, what were some of the qualities that um, came to mind for you initially? So, um, patience, um, non like a lack of judgment, uh, a neutral like a neutral position, um, an understanding position as well. Yeah. Um, and like that warmth. When you said warmth, I had. Maybe it's the way you said it, but I had like a nice warm feeling. Um, and that's something that I think I expect from a compassionate voice, but I don't ever really articulate in that way. Um, that warmth is is an intangible thing for me. Mm-hmm. It kind of encompasses those other qualities I listed. So the patience, the understanding, um, I think those two things are the things, the biggest traits mm. within compassion for me. Yeah, brilliant. And like, it's also because they they were so kind of pertinent for you. They could also kind of it must have made it easier to connect to the kind of compassionate self and doing this exercise because those mm. kind of yeah, you were able to kind of they were so strong they were able to kind of yeah take, give you a very bodily reaction, which is really really. Yeah, that's what kind of is coming across. Yeah, the bodily reaction, I think, is important. And you kind of, you don't realise how good you feel after taking deep breaths. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously, I think we spoke previously that it's usually children that take quite 
belly belly deep breaths and as we get older and busier and we take shorter breaths because we don't have time to breathe <laughs> oh, yeah um I think just taking three deep breaths and this is something I've I've kind of discovered from doing the yoga and whatever else just taking three deep breaths is such a big help mm-hmm. in calming calming yourself down yeah definitely and uh, we also said about the the kind of the vagus nerve which kind of runs from kind of our minds all the way through our bodies to our guts um it like connects to our hearts our lungs our kind of intestinal systems and and deep belly breathing stimulates that nerve and it can kind of give it it can it gives like really great kind of releases of like reduces cortisol and releases of other kind of oxytoxin and stuff so i think it's shown that deep breathing stimulates that nerve and that nerve's connected to so many kind of stress you know when we get stressed we might have a tummy ache or butterflies or feel nervous so it's just that nerve acting up so good to kind of regulate it by kind of deep belly breathing um and yeah and shallow breathing is often the sign of when you're nervous anyway and that threat system's already kicked in because it's you know you breathe quicker and you're ready to go for a, a like a quick run basically you're really kind of getting ready to to breathe quicker and and your heart's racing and stuff so mm. i think it's good to yeah, slow down that system that soothing and, and start engaging the soothing system and which is a lot slower and a lot more kind of soothing as it's it sort of soothing your brain um exactly. yeah but then in yeah. turn the rest of your body yeah exactly well i think that's that's always an age-old question sometimes the danger is when you just think of a brain being very separate to your body or your mind um it also makes it kind of actually they're actually really intertwined there some people say they're the same thing um and it's only like in greek times they thought the mind was in your stomach no they didn't realize because before kind of we were able to do autopsies and such and knew about human anatomy the brain was located in our stomachs in other literature is located in our chests in our hearts it's where the feelings manifest themselves yeah where we feel like a tightness in the chest or when we feel love we feel it in our chest in our stomachs it's that area isn't it Mm, it's also the center of us so and i think that's what that's one of the things about yoga it kind of sees the whole body as a moving part um again it's, yeah. it's a very nice way of looking at it because that means you have to give everything some equal tender love and care rather than just focusing on thoughts and, and that kind of part of the and sort of separating everything into different compartments it's good to think actually okay so I've done something for my kind of mental health well-being by also looking about how what I eat how much I sleep um kind of how my body feels how relaxed how much time do I have in the day to feel relaxed that kind of stuff it's all kind of important um and then other stuff like during lockdown about kind of lack of routine or feeling kind of, you know, or not kind of having a great sleep because you're sleeping later or you're you know having bad dreams and such. That all kind of has a knock on effect. So it's good to start, start trying regularly. Yeah. Um, but why do you think it is that some days you can feel great? I know it's a variety of factors and not a single answer to this, but, you know, there's that term that's been coined like Corona coaster. <laughs> um <laughs> which is deeply cringe but at the same time it's probably very accurate in how in terms of how people are feeling um feeling really up one day um enjoying the freedom from working from home and then the next day feeling totally down and just low on energy and you know like my sleeping patterns for example have been quite consistent and I've been quite healthy like in terms of what I eat and my activity levels 
but then that that dip that that like ebb and flow and mood is still there so it's strange yeah no and I think you're right there's a a variety of factors and sometimes it could be a day where the self-critic is feeling particularly more hopeless about what's happening in the world and it's sort of having an effect on us sometimes it's more physiological um so we're, we're getting a lot less exercise than we were before and that's a good way of regulating mood um and and kind of having that we have a bit of structural not enough structural we're missing people that are in our lives that kind of normality we had before um and kind of the new the term new normal as it's known now um and that adjustment and change so i think sometimes it's just actually and some yeah and then think about the news and what's happening externally to us which is a the kind of the pandemic outside and and the media kind of feeding into the negativity and that self-critics way of looking at the world it's it's all these factors kind of will make us go up and down and I think one of the things is we can't force ourselves to be happy all the time we can't force ourselves to be okay why am I not being compassionate towards myself today that's not the aim of compassionate focused therapy it's just to kind of give you a breathing space and to give you kind of a, a bit more of awareness of the different parts of you not just the negative parts but yeah I think the ups and downs you're right the term itself is cringe but it's a good way of kind of having a shared experience so we're all going through it no one is coping the lockdown better than someone else if that if it's a it's not a competition it will go up and down for everybody and I think I often want to kind of reiterate that especially to people that have technology and social media that that comparison voice is also part of the self the threat detector that is almost like you're not doing as well in lockdown what's going on ring the alarms um yeah, yeah I think it's just being okay with being having both good and bad days because that is part of human experience and I think suffering is just as prevalent as happiness and I think we, we can have both um, and you can live with yeah, both I mean, and make peace with exactly. both and, yeah and accept both to an extent and I think yeah when things get too much and it gets to the point where you think actually no I'm having more bad than good and I want to do something to make myself better. This, these exercises and, and kind of the more bodily exercises are great. Um, but at the same time, it's no, there's no magic cure to having to having life, to having both negative and bad and positive experiences. So I think, yeah, that's just my kind of get out clause for all those ways of saying, what can I do to be happy? happiness isn't a, a kind of a destination it's a journey as cliche as that sounds but it's just the idea we'll go up and down and any everyone does it everyone has that way of, of being So we've um, spoken a bit about the compassionate voice. Um, I think it'd be a good idea to speak about the inner critic. And, you know, it's something that I discussed in episode five, um, the episode about me. Um, And I think it's something that um, relates, a lot of people have been relating to. I've had a lot of feedback from people that they found it very useful. Could we talk about that a little bit as well? There's a type of therapy called narrative therapy. came from Australia, um, kind of the late 80s. And um, the reason I'm mentioning it is because that's the thing about psychology. Um, it's all theories, as in there's no brain scan I can do to find your self-critic. And there's no um, blood test I can do to kind of find out if someone has depression or anxiety or kind of, you know, there's, it's not that clear cut. 
But the beauty of having theories is that we can work together to find the one that fits our way of kind of, or, or the client's way or our way, shared way of kind of seeing how what, how experiencing the world. And one kind of technique is externalizing. Um, some people don't like it, which is fair enough because that's not the theory or the model that fits. So we will never ever force anyone to kind of into one way of thinking. But then for some others, it does work. And externalizing um, is just to create some distance between yourself and the kind of problem. I think in a world where it's sort of known as being problem saturated, it's really easy from the critics that are in our lives to the critics that kind of give us exam scores to the critics in our heads, you know, all these different critics can make us really focus on the problems, what we can't do, what we're not good at, what we're damaged about. Externalizing is just, yeah, creating that space between um, yourself and the problem by giving it um, the different characteristics from you, from making it something more tangible, something that if it's more tangible, it's, it feels more separate to kind of being part of your being, kind of like this idea that I am like this. So a good way to think about it is a language you use. So if we say um, Sally has depression, that's very different to depression follows Sally around or Sally has a dark cloud of depression over her so that's two very different ways of thinking about it or if you want to use a different example it could be um Andrew's a worrier actually it could be yeah and worry follows Andrew around or worry eats away at Andrew so it's again like this idea now it's become a bit more separate and that's just like a little bit externalizing takes it to the next level where it could then sort of become something else completely and then we can start talking to it. We can have like role plays and chat to it um, or, you know, give it a gender, he or she, and see if that kind of helps us understand the effects of this kind of problem in, a, in air quotes. So would you be able to kind of explain in a little bit more detail um, what your inner critic sort of looks like? Who is your inner critic? Um my inner critic is most definitely a man and I think the reason I kind of related to a male gender was because a lot of the people in my life who've been kind of um more dictating or more louder um may it be because of his patriarchy or because of their own personal characteristics have been men and I think it was a lot easier to feel a male presence in kind of that voice in the back of my head that is telling me um that things are wrong or I'm wrong or kind of just being negative and 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 loud really it's a bit overbearing um, and I guess that comes with that strength that kind of manly strength that I feel like I didn't have as my more feminine kind of elements um and the kind of louder emotions as well like anger and and kind of thing or they're known as kind of masculine emotions like anger um and kind of war and stuff like that so very different to um, kind of more feminine ones in my in my experience and my kind of feelings, which I felt like the compassionate voice held more. Um, I gave it a name many many years ago, but I think it's lost its name. He's lost his name now. It's just more the self-critic, and I'm okay with that term. So the self-critic, or he's active today. Um, he won't shut up today, like that kind of element that he is him. And he's kind of in your face. Um, and I even gave him like a race. So he's white because, again, it kind of I guess it feels about my kind of empowerment or disempowerment rather in this sort of situations when he's a bit louder. So, yep, he's just like a 
a white guy who thinks he's better than me um, and thinks like he can say things which have a lot more clout than what I'm trying to say um, right. and often walks over me. It's a bit like characteristic wise, kind of a bit more boasty, a bit more kind of like, what do you know? It's a bit more arrogant. Um, yeah, that kind of, I don't know if I'm building a good picture of him. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's funny because I was at a theatre show with um, a few friends last year and it was amazing. I have to find the name. Um, not that you'll be able to go anytime soon, but the lady was bringing to life her inner critic. And mm-hmm. she was, she characterised him as, as a white male, middle-aged, like chief executive. <laughs> that's a really good way of looking at it yeah and I thought so too and um he's like this very corporate individual that just sneers at any mistake and laughs really hard when she makes a typo (laughs) or something really serious like banal like that um I think for me um I can relate to that sort of person but for me it's my inner critic if I had to tell you is female and is kind of like a merger of every everyone that's been mean to me <laughs> growing up. Um, it's a mean girl, but also like a mean, like a mean early to mid twenties girl, and um, kind of like you know those mean uh, retail managers that you used to have. <laughs> is is a female voice is hypercritical of me actually when I'm because I'm quite blunt I'm quite direct um and it's funny because this 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 voice is is critical of me when I'm not as gentle or soft as I as I think I need to be in a scenario so it's like I'm it's critical of me for not being compassionate enough or critical of me for um being too honest too blunt which is something that I've been criticised for in the past. Um, I think that's my worry sometimes when I'm talking to people. I'm very hyper-conscious that I'm not being accommodating enough. And that's the voice that's telling me that I'm I'm not compassionate enough. I'm not... So that I, you know, I need to be... I've got a voice telling me that I'm not good at something or it's not it's not eating away at my confidence, but it's eating away at my self-esteem which for me, I make the distinction between the two. Because outwardly, I think sometimes I, I appear very confident to people, but what is that actually built on? I think that my inner critic chips away at the foundation of my very being, my self-esteem, like really core values like compassion, my honesty. Um, and yeah, just chips away at things like that for me. Yeah, it's a real kind of character attack, isn't it? It's sort of it's deep there within you, but it's also it's criticizing the very much your kind of the, your values and your kind of yeah. how you want to see yourself and actually you to kind of be where you want to be. But I also wonder if thinking about kind of the wider context that we live in, if these kind of views of what a woman should be or kind of what feminine means mm-hmm. and things like this and how kind of you should act in your place as a kind of a a woman in society I was wondering that for me that really kind of intrigued me and I don't know if that had any bearing on what the critic criticized also the fact that the critic was a woman interesting so yes I think that um 
I've been told, perhaps growing up, that my way of speaking, I mean, maybe this is again like patriarchy and um, like cultural, culturally speaking, I think mm-hmm. in my culture, um, women are expected to be quite sweet. Yeah. Um, they're fiery, don't get me wrong, but they are expected to be quite accommodating, caring, motherly. Mm-hmm. And whilst I think I have those traits in me, I don't think that comes across in the first instance when I'm talking to people because I'm not trying to mother strangers. Yeah. <laughs> um, because we're also quite like a guarded culture, you wouldn't necessarily open up to people or show them that warmth that we were discussing mm-hmm. like from from the off. Yeah. It's something that builds, like a relationship that builds. Mm-hmm. So... I think what comes really naturally to me when I first meet people is just being honest and showing like basic respect, but I don't necessarily show that feminine side, that um, maternal side, because I don't feel like I need to, but that's probably what society expects from me. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And also, I guess, like, depending on culture, you're right, showing that side is actually a bit of vulnerability in there too. Initially, over familiar, if you were too compassionate or too over the top with someone's kind of... Um, or what is perceived as over the top for kind of someone's difficulty if you don't know them at all but and I think that's fair but I think as in it's it's a good way to kind of see kind of where that's come from because often it has come from yeah our experiences and our kind of social rules and our social norms which then kind of feed the self-critic very very well because it's like think about threats we talked about kind of social position being one of the things that threaten daily so it's it's, it, it's no it's kind of yeah it, it's not a no-brainer in the sense that it, it's, it's very preoccupied with that as well and, we and I think everyone has different interpretations of what it means to be compassionate and I've been you know I've been in situations where I've tried to go too far the other way where I've compromised my own values just to show that I am compassionate that I am um understanding and, and patient and all these things just to be the bigger person I've, I've compromised my own values and compromised my own position um just to prove a point that we didn't need to prove yeah um Mm -hmm. and I think that that then has now created a scenario for me where perhaps before I was a bit like when I was growing up I was maybe you know self-absorbed teenager I wasn't really thinking I didn't overthink things the way I do now and I didn't necessarily worry so much if someone thought I was blunt I thought that was their problem not mine and now I'm Mm -hmm. super hyper conscious of upsetting people um and maybe that's through navigating work and trying to build a career where upsetting people, the stakes are higher than if someone dislikes you at school. <laughs> yeah. true. And I think even our worlds are definitely a lot bigger. So I think, I guess, when we're teenagers or younger, our world's very much a home and school, um, maybe like to the cinema. But you know what I mean? Like it's a very small circle and it's very like, it's very much focusing on yeah what's my status here and now but then when we get older we think about kind of our careers and you're right we think about our place in the world and we think about future relationships like our world just expands mm. tenfold so that means it's tenfold it's tenfold more places to kind of get something to worry about basically and I think yeah you're right the situations that kind of future thinking and future kind of planning is something that really kicks in when we get older anyway and a little little less impulsive than kind yeah of like future. more risk averse and you know, I drew to promote to promote the episode. I drew that brain um, with, with loads of different boxes, and I, I think I came to a point where 
I had a, my, my brain was full of just crap and you know there'd be a yeah. big box of thinking about my really bad relationships with people in the past and then look, like my career would be like a tiny dot and my hobbies would be non-existent yeah. and then there would be um, a box for my family because I was worried about them but there was not much going on in that brain of mine apart from those two big things of worrying about how I was relating to others and agonizing yeah, yeah. over things I couldn't control re- regarding to my family. And I kind of, I, I, I drew this brain um, and, I, and I took a step back. It was quite shocking to me that when, it, when I laid it out like that, I think that's an exercise worth doing if anyone is listening and interested in trying it. Just draw a big blob on, on, your, on a piece of paper um, a circle and then try and populate it with the things that are occupying your mind and you'll be really surprised I think um, and then maybe you'll have you'll start realizing why you have such a loud inner critic yeah what's feeding it what it was it's kind of bigger, bigger worries and and I'm wouldn't be surprised if like after after lockdown you read redrew that brain if it looked a little different and I think it sometimes it's the situations itself and things go up and down and yeah I think when things just feel a bit overwhelming when your head literally feels full it's it just it's a very therapeutic act to then spill it out onto paper anyway and I think that's yeah and and I really if you know art therapy and stuff is a real big thing in terms of its effectiveness and things and I think you know it's a valid valid exercise to do um I was just sorry I was just about to say personally like I find it really good to write lists, some of pros and cons lists, not pros and cons, like all my worries go on a bit of paper and I feel really overwhelmed and I just fill them out onto paper. And then I kind of try and then find something else, like something else I want to do or circle the things that are that I want to kind of focus on for today. So like if I go in before sleep, like it's probably the worst time to do this because it gets you all kind of riled up. But I've done it before where I'm just like, I can't sleep until I get this shit out of my head. And then I just have to write it all out and just feel so much better. So I'm more than a misty person. Um, but again, it's different for everybody. Some people like journaling. Some people like just talking it out with someone else. Like it's very much, yeah, finding your niche. Or finding yeah, and I think um, I, I medicate in ways. Like I, I cook to unwind. Um, I, I used to bake a lot. Um, I don't as much these days because... I realized that I stress bake. I don't bake to unwind. <laughs> I I literally bake when I'm super stressed and I'm I don't know what to do with myself and I've got loads of negative energy and I'm just trying to get it out. Whereas when I cook it's such a it's a, it's a much slower process. When I'm baking I'm measuring it to the gram. My OCD is coming out. Um cooking I'm just like intuitive, you know, it's that intuitive natural flow and um, it takes a bit longer, uh, not as prescriptive. And then I'll listen to some nice music. That's really evocative for me, music, I would say. Um, yeah, so I think the two activities I enjoy do engage, especially cooking, does engage all the senses, like the smells, like fresh parsley or um, like just smelling like lemon zest these kind of things just make me quite happy um and I I don't I think when I get busier I don't have time to do things like that and that's why I'm because I'm not 
grounding myself I guess definitely that's kind of all of us um yeah in the kind of the world we live in um the kind of here and now it's the, always is takes the back seat maybe lockdown is an opportunity to reconnect mm. I think it's been a massive opportunity to reconnect and that's something that you know, I said in my episode that um, I feel it feels like my hobbies have become hollow. And that's I think I regret the way I phrase that now. It's not that it's my endless pursuits, right? The the career, the career, the career ladder, the the friendship groups, the, um, you know, the relationships, the men, like all this stuff that is, you know, adds to your life, but it shouldn't be your life. And I think that they were endless pursuits in the sense that you can't get enough of them. And suddenly you're in lockdown and you can't see certain people. You can't, um, I don't know, you you have to sit with yourself way more than you would normally and really discuss internally and agree <laughs> what is important to you. And this lockdown supposedly has made people reflect on that. And I think actually sitting with ourselves is so much harder than doing all those things. And we think those things are the hard part, but actually just doing nothing sometimes is harder than than they're not. It's scary to sit with yourself and have to kind of face yourself, if that makes sense. We can, off, you know, it's good to have that balance of just like nice distractions with other people. But then you're right, there's this, lockdowns kind of had this opportunity we've had to kind of face our demons in some way or just sit and have that conversation with ourselves we've been avoiding for years like it's 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 scary for everybody to kind of have to face it and not everybody wants to face it I think that's the other thing we've been forced into this position um without consent and I think that's you know a, a, another reason why some people might be finding lockdown a lot more harder than others and again day by day it's different so I might be having a really bad day tomorrow versus a day-to-day so it's just it's it's a good way to kind of sort of appreciate and show compassion towards other people's experiences of lockdown um and yeah those those conversations and that stillness um it takes time because we've we live in we lived in a habit where we didn't do that and and now it's kind of all those painful thoughts might come in but hopefully with kind of an opportunity to yeah, express yourself differently or to ground yourself will kind of help you know stop us kind of getting rushed away with those negative that those kind of self-critical thoughts um so yeah that's kind of if it if it I think if that works for yourself I'm sure that also works for loads of other people as well mm. and people that might be feeling a bit lost of like where do I start I just feel bad but I don't know where to start um I think yeah start with doing something quite sensory and also yeah just try and get that routine back and is there sort of advice that you would give to those considering going therapy or those that have tried it in the past and it hasn't worked for them? And for those that don't consider it something that um, is appropriate for them culturally? Seeking therapy is um, a way of kind of exploring your thoughts and your relationships um, and just like understanding yourself, um, kind of the impact of the world on you and, and 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 seeing what impact it has on your mental health. Um, it's worth exploring and you can do it through the NHS or you can do it through sort of private 
kind of counseling or therapy and um, there's loads of different models and I wouldn't say be afraid of kind of shopping around and and if you don't if you work with somebody and it didn't quite work um, that's not a sign of failure it just means that that model or that therapist wasn't the right fit for you and that's kind of um, a good way of looking at it but through the NHS you can access CBT which is kind of a, a very kind of basic level of, of therapy a very kind of on on the kind of lower end of understanding but it, you can always build on it later um, and it's, it's CBT is it like um, kind of focused on helping you cope day to day whereas psychotherapy would be more let's talk about your past what mm-hmm. has led to you being you today exactly, yeah. exactly. so um, CBT which stands for cognitive behavioral therapy um, is a good way to um, see the effects of thoughts on yourself the very kind of basic mechanics of like how thoughts and body interact and it's a good place to start really um and and thinking about very specific issues but then sometimes um it's like I said it for me personally it didn't work so I didn't I was never kind of into it um and psychotherapy again it's very deep but then it may not be a place that people are ready to explore or they may not feel like that's the kind of the right model or approach for them and I think that's Mm. fair enough as well um but this is compassion focused and it's sort of known as third wave CBT because it kind of goes beyond what CBT um, initially did. And um, yeah, but seeking therapists, NHS, like I said, is more CBT. Um, but if you want more, there's private therapists. You can go for ones that um, are kind of from a similar background from you, from yourself in terms of ethnicity. Yeah. Or- I think that's important for a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, for, for me, it has been. Um, and we can speak about it another time of kind of like, not so good experiences of therapy um so I think yeah it's it's about the idea that you it is about you and your well-being in therapy not about I need to fit the therapist view of myself thank you so much Navi for joining us in episode six part two we'll hear Navi's experience of working as a clinical psychologist within elderly adult care. And in the meantime, if you would like to participate on Stay Home Podcast or you have suggestions for topics we could cover, please write to me at stayhomepodcast. That's stayhomepodcast on Instagram and Twitter. Same handle for both.